Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. Welcome to my podcast. This is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today, my guest is Guy Branham. Guy is a stand-up comedian and comedy writer. He came up in the San Francisco comedy scene just ahead of me. We had a lot of mutual friends, which is how we got to know each other. Guy uh, was a writer uh, and uh, on screen for Chelsea Lately, for Punked, for Fashion Police with Joan Rivers, uh, for Totally Bias with W. Kamau Bell, where he had the fantastic recurring segment, No More Mr. Nice Gay. Uh, he was the sassy gay friend in the uh, Ashton Kutcher, Natalie Portman rom-com, uh, No Strings Attached. So, and the host of the web series, The Factuary. Um, and uh, Guy and I sat down to talk about uh, his experience growing up as a uh, gay Jewish uh, archie in rural California uh, recently when he was in town for SF Sketch Fest. Here's Guy Branham. Um, the things you learn, you end up learning on your own. And school is mainly just about teaching you how school works. And I don't know. I went to public school, like... People always say terrible things about public schools in LA. Everyone feels the need to have their, you know, to be paying 20 grand a year to be sending their kid somewhere where they won't have to touch a poor person or where they only touch the poor people who we bring in specifically as like an act of charity. Um, and I don't know. I just think what made America cool was public education. Well, I mean, and like I went to public school through eighth grade and then a private high school, mm -hmm. and my brother went to Brandeis Hillel elementary school and then public junior and high and high so i have you know say we were, we were a controlled experiment <laughs> uh the result of which is that i'm a higher achiever and he's a nicer person um, <laughs> so the thing of it is that like i feel really grateful for having been able to do both and know how to interact and be around all kinds of different people yeah and i feel like so much of what you get in private school is taught that you're special and better than other people yeah and it's certainly easier to learn when that's the expectation that's around you. Um, I always went to very small, I, I mean, I went to small schools because I was living somewhere rural. So there, it, it wasn't the kind of facelessness that I think that people experience in city schools sometimes. But I have a friend who teaches at an upscale private school in Los Angeles. But it's like a school for kids who have learning, not learning disabilities, but who like, for whom a regular high intensity kind of Harvard Westlakey school would not work, uh, though some of them it's uh, he teaches junior high and some of them go on to those sorts of schools, but it is like crazy and wonderful the world that he explains that they of like caring and sharing and calling all of your teachers by their first name kind of thing. Right. I mean, there's not you know at the same time I feel like like I have a lot of people in my family who are teachers and I feel like if someone asked you to design an institution that was perfectly efficient at crushing a child's spirit, you would not be able to imagine school as the mechanism of that. You yeah. know, like there's no way that school, you know, my kids were super excited to go to kindergarten. And then there was a point where they were like, so how long do we have to do this? Right. And I was like, forever, every day. And they're like, why? And I was like, I, I don't know. My, you know, <laughs> my parents are homeschooling my niece and I worry so much about her not getting the social interaction that she should get from school. And, and I worry about other things. My parents who have high school diplomas now helping her with algebra is like a real area for concern. 
But that said, she does just sort of wake up every morning and educate herself in a world without hostility with just two people who want her to be smart. And she's super, like, she's super smart. And it's kind of lovely. And I worry about her when she has to go to a terrible office job, not being ready for that because she didn't have to spend her child at a terrible office job. That's a really funny way of describing something. Yeah. Um, so we just we just had you you had said that that uh, I booked you for your first Jewish thing today. Yes. How did it feel? It was fun. It was it was very very fun. It was a little bit scary just because I didn't know how. Like uh, I, I didn't want to offend anyone's sens- sensibilities. I didn't want to um, say something mean about Haaretz. You know, I I did not want to uh, step on any toes as. It's a room with over 100 Jews. Somebody's going to have a reason to take umbrage with something you say. Well, so we just did this this Yiddish radio theater live here at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. And it was, I, I'm sure you noticed that I certainly did, that like during the entire program, we're sitting in the front row and I could you hear people behind us talking the entire time, correcting things, yes. offering their own opinion, just sort of under their breath to the person next to them. Or like, I don't know what they thought they were, if they were contributing or but they couldn't resist pointing out that they were right. The one guy like stood up two or three times, you know, to correct you and me. Uh, so I, I just, I thought that was really funny and sort of adorable. No, it was, it was very, very sweet. I did not grow up somewhere like there was no synagogue in our town. We like, I didn't know Jews who I wasn't related to. And then Berkeley was like the first place that I like had social interaction with other Jews but it's always been people my age were like fucking around and making a joke about something was fine and comfortable. And, um, you know, I just uh, like, I don't want to be mean to those nice people and I'm not as comfortable as I, I should be. Right. So, okay. So part of the reason we're here today talking for my podcast is that, uh, like the sort of the way that I've approached the podcast is I only want to talk to people that I feel like I have a, I have a stake in the questions. Okay. You know, so I'm not, like, my, I was talking to my producer, Sketchfest was coming up. He was like, are there people that you want to interview at Sketchfest? I was looking at the schedule, and I didn't want to just try to, like, find people to talk to. Like, I had to feel like, who do I have an agenda with? Okay. Uh, and so so here's my agenda. I have a couple things on, on my agenda with you. Uh, one of them is, we're friends. Yes. I have deep affection for you as a person and respect for you as an artist. Uh, but, you know, I feel like, I'm just curious about your life and your trajectory. Yeah. And uh, and you don't fit the profile of any Jew that I've ever met. Uh-huh. And so I, I wanted to, to sort of take the opportunity to like learn you more methodically. Let's go through why do you say I don't fit the profile of, of any Jew you've ever met? Well, specifically, I have no experience with any Jew that comes from rednecks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is as confounding to me as anything could possibly be. Well, it's it's a very confounding experience to uh, to come from. Um, basically, it comes down to uh, my mom's family are German Jews who uh, and some Dutch Sephardic, but mostly German Jews who came into the South. A lot of people don't realize that there were before the Civil War, Charleston, South Carolina, was the largest Jewish population in uh, in the United States, um, but. Uh, they, so they were who were mostly Sephardic Jews, but um, they but largest in relative terms, it, like not. Yeah, it wasn't particularly large to to begin with, but um, like 
they ended up in Arkansas and were like merchanty folk. And then wait a minute. So your your people go go back to the early nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah, like early, like uh, they they've been in the the United States for a while. Like they've been in the United States for a while. I think um, because it is a weird story. My mom and I tried to like piece together as much as we could, as far as we could, and like the first guy we found ended up getting land in Arkansas because he had fought in the Revolutionary War, um, and so. They had been part of this extremely small Jewish community in northwestern Arkansas. So, like, dudes who would be on the Presbyterian church board in Bentonville, but then go to go to New Orleans for the High Holy Days. Uh, just sort of this weird, very assimilated, crypto-Jewy kind of thing where people don't need to know that you're Jewish. It was like my my grandmother has so much tension about anyone remotely knowing that she's Jewish. Um, so like they were in Arkansas and then the Dust Bowl happened and all of Arkansas and Oklahoma moved to the Central Valley of California. And that is what happened. So it's a weird situation of my dad is a Gentile, my mom is Jewish. And um, is your dad from Arkansas too? That's the thing is that everyone in our town is from the same part of Arkansas. So like um, they are from almost the exact same place, but there is no social crossover between the people that they knew because they were, my grandmother's family were such a hardcore people apart. Like it was such a hardcore, weird difference. You should fear. Cause like my dad is like a Republican and he has this very like southern sensibility of like, oh, not southern like redneck sensibility of like, oh, we'll just take care of it. Like this, this small town, the good old boys will just handle all the problems, and that's how it's handled. And my mom has this very tense; those are the people who come for us. Like very much fearing the rest of the people in our town because they are they know something about her. And so, and what else do you know about the family history in Arkansas? Um, it was, A, they're the Jews from Bentonville, Arkansas. Bentonville, Arkansas, if you don't know, is where the first Walmart was. Those are where the Waltons are from. So there is the weird, just fucked up annoyance of, we should have, we should have been the retailers in that town. How on earth were we not the retailers of that town? I actually heard an interview once with somebody who had done like a doctoral dissertation about the like the degree to which the corporate culture and structure of Walmart was embedded in Arkansas Hill people. Oh, really? Yeah. It's- well, it's very funny now because I would always try to learn things about Jews in that space because like, and it was always hard to get information because as my mom always put it, those people didn't want to be found. Like, you know, my grandmother and her, her sisters just and her brothers just aren't comfortable talking about this. But the, it, there is a synagogue there now because there are enough people who do business with Walmart or Jews who work for Walmart that like this place is sort of flowered again and no one there knows anything about the Jews who lived there before. And so like your, your mom's family, are they, I don't know, a more elegant way of asking this, but are they what I would think of as kaiki? Like, are, are there bookshelves a lot? Like, are they... Um, it is... Okay, so 
like it's really weird, like the subtlety of the differences that you wouldn't think. Uh, three of my okay, so uh, my my grandma's husband, so the, the guy who is married to my Jewish grandmother, um, was Native American and raised on uh, uh, a reservation. He was he is like a blue eyed, heavily assimilated Cherokee, but he like did not go to school at all. And my my two like Gentile grandparents, my dad's parents. They both went through sixth grade. My grandmother graduated from high school. Like, she got pregnant when she was uh, 15 years old, but she graduated from high school. Like, she grew up reading, like, like no one I knew read for fun except for my mom and my grandmother. Like, um, she was smart and pushy and cheap. Like, I mean, these are things that you would, that you would recognize. Um, strong facial features, um, but not like, not like Yiddish. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that sort of thing. I mean, there was the way she cooked was Jewish. And then there was like just the super strong awareness of kashrut. Um, that was something, it was, it was weird. The things that like they felt mattered to carry with them, like the things that mattered to keep going of just sort of like, strongest basic understanding is we don't eat these things. And were they, did they pay attention to the Jewish world outside? Like, were, did they, did they read the forward or were, did they, you know, were they, were they, you know, did they talk about things on television as being good for the Jews or did they care when Jews accomplish big things? Like, um, okay. Yes. Uh, passionate awareness of Israel, like passionate visceral awareness of Israel as a big deal because my grandmother was really messed up by like just her. Uh, I always, I had a, I had a joke that I used to do. My grandmother lived through the Holocaust. She was in Arkansas at the time, but that's not that much better. Um, but like, she, like she was very much aware of like her, her dad basically freaked her out constantly, all of them out about they're coming for us. Like it's only a matter of time before they come for us. They are coming for us. Um, so uh, it was that there wasn't, uh, there's a general fear of real Jews because those people won't accept us. Like, because we've been off being this weird half assimilated thing for such a long time. So like uh, a presumption that like real Jews would judge us for the, you know, um, not going to synagogue thing that we've been doing for a while or they had been doing for a while but also a really visceral need to to keep it going to understand my mom is my mom is her she only has brothers and so my grandmother was very explicit about like your children are also Jews so this matters like my cousins never got drilled with it in the same way that my sister and I did that like we were like legal Jews Huh. And, okay, and so then they they move out during the Dust Bowl to Yuba City, is that right? First they moved to Bakersfield, and then they ended up in, uh, in outside of Marysville, California. And they were, um, you know, my grandpa was a migrant farm worker, and my grandma um, would work in the canneries during the canning season. Um, so it's not fancy in that way, but there was also drilled into me an awareness of, like— this notion that you are like smart and bookish. It was just being told from a young age that like being smart and bookish is something that we do. 
And like, even though my family has been in this country for a very long time, having kind of an immigrant sensibility in a way that other people in my hometown didn't. And that that you can be smart and bookish as a migrant worker or a cannery worker. Yeah, that um, because my my grandma's dad was just a he was a sharecropper in Arkansas, but they still read every night. They still talked a lot. Like they, you know, um, they they had a Bible with a uh, they had an English language like regular Christian Bible, but with. Um, like string tying the New Testament um, so that they wouldn't read that part. Um, like, uh, Oh, wow. Like it's the forbidden books in Name of the Rose. Yes. Um, but it was like, you know, just a, a, a sense that I would be smart. I would go to school. These are things that are for me. And everyone around you is just going to think being a construction worker is enough. And you're different from that. And... And so what was it like for you growing up in, in that part of the country? Um, it was weird because I didn't know why my mom was telling me this stuff. Like the first conversation I remember having was when my sister was like, or my sister was like eight or nine and I was like three. And I just remember my mom like having this conversation with her about like, these are the things you need to know that like, this is why I don't know if somebody had like, tried to if she'd gone somewhere and and she like and like whether it was eating shellfish or something like that but for some reason my sister as a child was having this conversation about we are Jews and here are the things you need to know and I remember overhearing that and being like oh um but it it just seemed odd and then the fact that we were supposed to know it but then not talk about it in front of people seemed strange and I didn't understand that. It's interesting you said it because I've been thinking about this thing recently with my kids, where like we do a certain amount of Jewish stuff, but I'm not that I'm not particularly observant. Yeah, we celebrate Christmas with my in-laws. Yeah, uh, my kids go to you know Spanish immersion kindergarten, and so they're around a lot of Mexican culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of my daughter's best friends is uh, you know mixed Indian and uh, Thai. Mm-hmm. Filipino, so we like went to a, you know, they did Diwali, and then we also went to like a Filipino lantern thing for uh, uh, around Christmas, and we, you know, had done some Chinese New Year. And for my kids, why I sort of dawned on me one day that from my kids' point of view, there's all these things that come from different traditions, and they're still at the age where it's like I like this activity or I don't like this activity, mm-hmm. but that there's not any. They have no sense that. Of ours and theirs, like this yeah. is this is what we do, and this is something that we are appreciating of that belong that belongs to someone else in some way. Yeah, it's just culture is just a just a, a continuous soup to them, you know. And I and I was sort of curious about at what point they'll figure out. I'm not in any hurry, but at what point they figure out that there's that 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 they have a connection to some traditions that they may not have to others. That is very interesting for for two points. One of them is. There was something neat about the fact that growing up, it was always an intellectual conversation that began whatever was going to be ha- happening. It's because other people experience Judaism through like process and activities of going to a synagogue or going to a Purim, Purim carnival or whatever. That for me, it was being sat down and having like a, a story laid out to you and then, you know, matzah given to you and all of this. But like she was always like, 
putting it in a context and I wasn't able to take anything for granted and I wasn't able to understand anything as, oh, this is just a thing people do. It was always, well, this is a big deal. Like, this is a big deal and you, and you need to know this. But also, not being raised with any traditions in that way, um, I have been complimented on, like, better food at Seder's and stuff like that because I'm having to sort of, like, create it anew instead of just sort of doing what I think a person does for to a brisket. You don't have any nostalgic attachment to some horrible cuisine. Well, yes, it's uh, people get mad at me because well, like one of the splashy things I do um, is like I have I put a lot of work and effort into my seder every year. Like it is a big deal, and I am a big fan of Sephardic style haroset and like you know, nice real Jews don't want that. They want grated apples and cinnamon like mom made. And I'm like, but I'm doing these things with stone fruits that are just amazing and, and rooted in a tradition that uh, doesn't belong to me. Uh, at some point in my life, I acquired the, uh, I think uh, the Claudia Roden cookbook, which mm. is a, like the like a world of Jewish cooking kind of thing. Yeah. And there's like, 40 pages of Ashkenazi recipes and then 700 pages of Sephardic recipes. Exactly. That are phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, like, and the, the, we have switched to only using the Italian Herosa at Passover because. What is in it? It's like a, it's, it's essentially a compote where it's, yeah. you're stewing with, with wine. You use Menashevitz and you are, are braising apples, but also dates and raisins mm -hmm. and pine nuts. Well, that's um, lovely. So. And having the chopped up dates and raisins, and the and the and the cooked aspect of it is yeah so great. So, what like? I mean, the, this is this is what I know about Marysville and Yuba City is that when I was working for the nurses union, there was like an extended fight with the Fremont Rideout Hospital that's yeah. there. That, that I was born in Rideout. Okay, so or at Fremont, some, yeah. at some point, like. Uh, they it was not a hospital that the union wanted to unionize. Yeah. But suddenly, like basically the nurses got pissed off about something and came to us and were like, We're organizing tomorrow. And they were so pissed off that like the union election was won instantly, but it was this honky tonk thing where like it took fucking forever of trench warfare uh to get a contract and then, you know, and just like every contract they were taking stuff away and dealing with this like honky-tonk company town where the newspaper was like totally in the pocket of the hospital administration and fighting this whole teabagger culture and like it was just a trip uh so i don't you know that's that's basically m most of what i know about that region like what was the just culturally like this is not quaint small town california no and that's why this is not like mendocino county this is like rough and tumble it bothers me when people think of small towns as being these like idyllic places. The places where you go for weekend vacations only exist because dentists from the city are going there and spending money on their right. rustic rocking chairs. Places that in the Northeast you would summer. Yes, exactly. But we don't do that in the West. Like, and, um, like a small farm town is just existing on the very, very small difference in prices between the stuff that you like gather up and like the big conglomerate to which you sell it. Like, uh, Everybody is is barely holding on. Everyone I knew either worked in agriculture or construction. I didn't know anybody who had a college degree who wasn't a teacher or a doctor. And it's not like you dealt with doctors and it's not like the doctors lived around us. We sort of like lived off on our own 
um, in a portion of an almond orchard. Like my grandpa had purchased, my grandpa was from Arkansas and had always wanted to um, be a farmer and he always failed miserably. And his last effort was like 10 acres of almonds and then they chopped that up. So we lived on like two acres of almonds. But we would still in the in the fall, everyone who lived on these 10 acres would like get together and like harvest the almonds. So we would make a little extra money. Um, and so what's the, just what's the physical activity of har- harvesting almonds? Like? Oh, okay. First of all is I cannot refer to any way other than knocking almonds because when you refer to it, you sit like, and people in my town in Yuba city and Marysville, there are still people who have residual Southern accents. Um, my cousin who was 15 years younger than I am when he was like five would say like, I reckon or, or things like that just because the people around him said things like that. Um, but when you knock almonds, it's fucking <laughs> like, then it just seemed like the worst. And now I realize it's this beautiful thing I got to participate in. The dads go and stand at the base of the tree or like in the crotch of the tree with these things called malls, which are basically like mallets. And they beat against the, like the thicker lower branches of the tree. And then the moms all have these things called flailing poles. Um, that are like long thin poles that they like knock against the tops of the trees and then the almonds fall down onto a tarp and the children pick them up and put them in buckets. And I would get a present every year at the beginning of almond season. Um, so that like when I was a small child, I would get a present to like entertain me while everyone was working. And then once I was five or six, they were like, all right, you have to work now. And I got sad. Um, <laughs> but it was very like... It's, and this has not succumbed to any kind of automation or... Well, no, most places, the thing is, is places that have uh, um, larger farms do that with automation. We just stopped doing it. It just stopped being worth the money. And so... When and I, it hasn't all been turned over to undocumented workers making $2 an hour? Yeah. Um, it is really interesting the way that, like, being in California, we forget it, but we have these, like, higher value kind of bougier products, and you kind of, you make more money off of it. And there, there are, there is something cool about the fact that, like, Agriculture here hasn't been corporatized. I mean, it is agriculture in the Central Valley is super corporatized, but like almonds less so than say rice or wheat or something like that. I uh, I had a friend who who was a photographer who did a a series of really fantastic photograph portraits of the family farmers of the San Mateo coast. Uh And up and down the San Mateo coast, there are these like Italian, Portuguese, and Japanese families that have been. Uh, there for a hundred years, you know, raising pumpkins or herbs or flowers or, you know, goat cheese or whatever, like, uh, in these small farms. And so would your family harvest the almonds and then turn around and sell them to Blue Diamond? Or Blue what? Diamond. Blue Diamond is the man in my town. Blue Diamond is like, Blue Diamond and Sunsweet are in charge of Yuba City, California. And it means it's the weird thing of I never understood factories that work more than two months out of the year. Like we have these factories there, but they just go two months out of the year. Also, would you like your mind further blown about Yuba City, California? Absolutely. So uh, one third of the population, Okies. What do you assume another third of the population is? Mexicans. Mexicans. Another third of the population, Mexicans. Third third of the population, uh, Sikhs, who came over in like the 1930s um, because Northern California is exactly like Punjab and like built this beautiful rural Sikh community alongside the rednecks, but they're like the rednecks of India. Like it's not when people think of Indians, they think of 
like, uh, you know, doctors or engineers or something like that. And to me, it is an old man driving a tractor down our road. Um, and so it, it was this weird space of like, which I think kind of contributed to this like weird sense of, well, there not to get involved in other people's business. Like in our little town, you have these different cultures, but it's not the fun sort of come over to my house and have a samosa. It was like, you do your thing, we'll do our thing. And my mom was kind of explaining to us that like, even though we would go to the Arkansas picnic and stuff, still, we've got a, a separate thing going on. And there used to be, there was a synagogue in, in Marysville when she was growing up, but it was closed by the, I mean, there just weren't enough Jews. And there's also a Jewish cemetery. Uh, and, uh, and so there's, there's no intermarriage, right? So what was the... Oh, no, no, no. Like the, the, uh, the, there was the, the Asian exclusion law until the 1960s, which means every Sikh guy's paternal grandmother is a Mexican. Every Sikh guy, or like every every Sikh kid I went to school with, is that a paper thing or is that is that real? What do you mean a paper thing? Is that like paper cousins? Like we're related so that I can be here legally? No, no, no. It, what it was was just they could not bring a lady over, so they would. Uh, Sikhism is is very sort of like comfortable with conversion, and so they would just because they were working in the fields, the Mexican ladies who were there for them. The Mexican lady, and also, you know, white ladies in, in 1950 probably weren't that excited about um, marrying an, an Indian guy. Um, but uh, it, it was just sort of this weird thing I learned in high school of like, your your grandma's a Mexican? And then, you know, you know, Ajit's turning around and saying, yeah, mine too. Everybody's is. And then, but then they were, were they, what, what were there like three was, well, okay. So I want to say something else about Sikhs. So my, I first started learning about Sikhs when I was unionizing biking car messengers uh-huh. in the late 90s and early aughts. Yeah. And with car messengers, bike messengers were mostly white. Car messengers were mostly, like, it was sort of people who were marginal for a whole variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. So they were, like, white people who were coming out of jail or off of welfare, black people who were in the same boat, and then various different male immigrant groups. Yeah. And so, you know, as an organizer, if you want to, like, figure out how to build a union, you have to figure out, like, you know who is the, like, there's sort of, there tends to be, like, these internal social hierarchies within the different subgroups. Yeah. And so you figure out, like, who's the person who will, you know, organize the other Brazilian drivers. And my experience of organizing immigrant workers is that mostly, like, once they they will move as a group. And I have never encountered another group of immigrant workers who hated each other as much as the <laughs> Sikhs. Like, like, I remember talking to these Sikh messengers where... And they're all fucking named Singh, right? Uh-huh. Which is Smith up in Punjab. And they were it like, means lion. And they were like, oh, yeah, that guy, he's not a real Sikh. Uh, uh, you know, you, you need to go study up on Sikh.com to uh, understand all this. But uh, I, don't, I don't know his name. And I was like, you're both named Singh. Like, how <laughs> hard could the, What do you mean you don't know his name? You work together every day. You know, and they're like, yeah, I don't talk to him. He's not a real Sikh. Um, uh, we live three houses down from a Gurdwara, and there are stabbings or fights there once every couple of years. And it's funny now because the guys I went to high school with are now involved in these power struggles within the Gurdwara. And it, like, it's just funny and crazy to see this guy who I know from back when he was, you know, driving a Trans Am and dating Heather McDermott. Um, oh, I mean, 
there are so many fun, weird dynamics about having experienced that weird immigrant group. Uh, the guys all dated white girls until they until their wife arrived from India. Uh, and then like one guy like explains to a girl, we can still date, but I'm going to be married to this woman with an Indian medical degree now. <laughs> and then the girls didn't get to date anyone because like if they dated a white guy, they would be a whore. And Indian guys wanted a better, purer Indian girl from India. And I, of course, was closer friends with the girls. And since then, there were a lot of, um, you know, interesting, magnificent stories. I'm rambling and being boring. So wait, so what was high school like for you? Um, high school was, oh, and then there's, there's the other thing about feeling alienated, weird, and different with me is that I am gay. And so like that weirdly dovetailed with the whole things work differently for you. You're not like the rest of these kids who get drunk in quarries. You have your own interests. So high school was like, it was a very small high school. It was 300 people. And you have like three distinct tribes there of Mexicans, Indians, and, and redneck kids. But we all like work together. And at a school that size, everybody has to play football. Like you can't field a football team if everybody who is physically capable doesn't play football, which meant all the Indian boys played football. All the Mexican guys played football. Um, and it was, it was cool. Or like, uh, you know, one Indian girl gets nominated for homecoming court every year. And it's not the girl who conforms with like white notions of what pretty is. It's not the girl with the biggest boobs or whatever. It's the girl with skin, the color of wheat and, you know, delicate ankles and green eyes. Um, so that was cool. I just didn't really have, like, I lived a life assuming no one around me would be interesting. And I think that's one of the reasons that, um, I do have a continuing relationship with Judaism is in my head, it was part of the, like the bigger, better urbane worlds that I lived in through books and things like that. Um, that's, you know, I would I would be able to go off and experience one day. You had your own diaspora. Yes. Um, or I would say no. I would say I made Aliyah to Berkeley. I would say, you know, I lived among people, but not of them. Like that was the sort of thing my grandmother would say: is you are among these people, but you you are not of them. And so then, when you got to Berkeley, did you did you like blossom? Yeah, it was like, it really was nice. It took me a while. Like I didn't come out at Berkeley. Like I, it took me, I was, a, I, I took five years at Berkeley and I didn't come out for any of that time. I didn't come out until law school. And that was because it was me chilling out. It was learning that there would be other people who had the same interests as me because I didn't have that the whole time I was growing up. Like I just had to assume that anything that really, really fascinated me was not, I wasn't going to get to talk to anybody about it because they were all just idiots who were concerned about their car stereos or getting drunk. And um, so, it, it, and does that, does that trajectory, does that mean you're going around the block with loneliness and depression and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I didn't even have the notion of depression. I, because <laughs> it's just how the world was. It's just how the world was. And I got to Berkeley and it was lovely. I met people who were smart and interesting. Uh, also, in Yuba City, Teachers could be weirdly hostile about a kid caring or wanting to know about the bigger world. They would be very aggressive about, you don't need to know that. And I was always asking questions that they were responding with a, why are you asking that? You don't need to know that. Like I was being trained to be the proletariat. I was being trained to grow up and 
like finished concrete or operates a uh, operate a, a tractor. And it's weird. The guys I went to high school with, um, because high income, relatively high income jobs were available without an education, none of the guys I went to high school with went to college. The girls did because we needed teachers and we needed bank tellers and stuff like that. So getting a degree from Chico was a thing. When I graduated from high school, four people went to four-year schools and it was two Indian girls, one white girl, and me. Um, and do you and do you still have that sort of proletarian background? Like like could you could you pass? Could you turn it on? Uh, I've I have facial hair right now, and it's very very hard for me because I am constantly trying to make clear that I am not one of those people. I was so scared that Yuba City was going to eat me that uh, my highfalutinness, which is a phrase that my father uses, putting on airs and being highfalutin are his problems with me. And like, I never felt like I could turn it on. And is that code for gay? Yes, it's totally code for gay. Like there was my sister, who's a terrible person, used to like, before I had come out, like tell my dad about things that I had done so that he would be weirded out by me being too faggoty in front of construction workers or whatever. Um, But I never felt like I could fit in then, um, but was scared that that world would eat me in and I would never make it out. And I would be like, that sad guy who works at a bookstore and like plays Magic the Gathering. Like that was what I assumed would come for me. So I was always just trying to prove myself on standardized tests um, to like be able to to make it out of the mean, like unpaved roads of Yuba City. <laughs> and then, uh, okay, so you get to Berkeley and then did you go straight to law school? I went straight to law school and my mom- In Minnesota? Yes. I was like, hey, maybe I need to figure out what I'm doing. Maybe I need to explore. And my mom was like, no, you're going to law school. You have to get a graduate degree. And I did what my mom said. Um, I didn't really think that Minnesota would be that different because we all watched the same television. So I thought there was pretty much just the one America. Uh, And then I went to law school in Minnesota and I realized I was wrong, that there were like significant cultural differences that I wasn't super comfortable with. Such as? Um, They were very helpful. I remember the first time I was on the phone with uh, the financial aid department at the University of Minnesota, and a woman said, let me go find out about that. And I had been dealing with Berkeley for five years, and I was like, what? what's going on here? This woman's helping me. She's not telling me to go to another line or call a different number. Um, but they were very chilly and did not... Like, they didn't talk a lot, they weren't pushy, and they didn't know how to deal with me. I was too much for them. And what was your, what was your experience with law school? Um, law school was very interesting because it was 300 people and we had lockers. It was like high school in that way. And like, everybody knew each other and things were super competitive. And that was strange because I had been at Berkeley where we just cared there were 40,000 people and you didn't know everybody and you just, you were on your own path and you were learning and that was beautiful and everybody respected each other. But once I was in law school, you were, you were fighting with each other to be on top and people were backstabbing and, and all of that. And I was deeply unhappy for like a year. And then I was like, I need to solve this unhappiness. And the way I decided to solve that unhappiness was coming out to my parents and they reacted very poorly. And the rest of law school, it was basically me just getting law school done while trying to get my feet under myself, homosexuality-wise. Do you remember that time we had dinner late at night 
um, in L.A. at that Thai place. Yeah. And you told me, you said, here's a story told three ways. Yes. About coming out to your mom. Yes. C- can you tell that story? Okay, sure. <laughs> um, all right, let me remember. Okay. So I was a small child and my uncle Ronnie, um, I was like five or and six. Part of, just, uh, part of the reason I asked this is because like, again, such cognitive distance for me that this story is about a Jewish woman. Yes. Okay. So uh, this story, uh, I'm supposed to open it up by saying, I told my mom that I was gay over the phone. Here's why I told my mom I was gay over the phone. When I was like six years old, my uncle Ronnie, who lived at the other end of the orchard, he was pulling off his shirt and he had a little scar on his back. And he said, hey, brother, you see that scar? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, ask your mama where I got that. And so I asked her and my mom said, well, guy, when I was about 14 years old, I came home from school and I baked a cake. Um, and uh, I was frosting it and it was almost done. And Ronnie came in and said, sister, give me a piece of that cake. And I said, fuck no, Ronnie, this cake's for after dinner. And he said, sister, give me a piece of that cake. And she said, fuck no, Ronnie. Uh, And then he reached over and he just shoved his hand into the cake and pulled out a chunk of it. And her beautiful cake had been hurt. So as he was walking away, she uh, took the butter knife that she was um, frosting the cake with and stabbed it into Ronnie's back. That is the story told the first way. Here is the story told the second way. Um, uh, I went into my first year of high school and we had, had an English teacher named Mrs. Whitmer. And I liked her so much. And I came home and I told my mom, hey, mom, I like my English teacher. Her name is Mrs. Whitmer. And my mom said, Patty Whitmer? And I said, yes. And she said, don't tell Patty Whitmer I'm your mom. And I said, why? She said, well, Patty Whitmer and I went to high school together. And she was rich and I was poor. Uh, And one day when we were getting changed for gym class, Patty and her friends started uh, to make fun of this dress I was wearing. It was a cute little shift dress. It was very simple, but that was the style at the time. So I picked up a pipe that was laying down and hit her in the face with it. Uh, That is the story uh, told a second way. And then I haven't told this in forever. Um, And then third thing is sophomore year, Rasan Young asked me to the Sadie Hawkins dance. Um, And I told my mom this and my mom said, uh, Rasan Young, Ray Young's daughter. Also, this is how classy Yuba City is. This is a white girl. Her dad's name was Ray, and her mom's name was Sandra. So they named her Ray San. Uh, my mom said, uh, Ray Young's daughter. And I said, yes. And she said, don't tell her that I'm your mom. <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, well, one time when uh, your, your dad and I were in our early 20s, we went to a bar and uh, uh, your dad ran into this guy, Alan Best, and they got into a fight. And basically it comes down to uh, my dad and this other guy were in a fist fight and Rasan Young's dad went to go like get involved and help this guy, Alan, in the fight. So my mom pulled a hammer out of the back of my dad's truck and hit him on the back of the head with it and knocked him out. Um, and so the, the conclusion of that story is I did not tell my mom I was gay in person because I did not want to be stabbed. <laughs> uh, she's a lovely woman. She's a lovely, very reasonable woman. She just comes from a world where you have to do that. Like she comes from, a, well, you don't have to do those things, but she comes from a world where power is exerted in like a very, very base sense. Um, and that's what she grew up with. So, uh, 
So, and how did they take you coming out? Um, moms always cry. Like, moms always cry. My dad just didn't accept it. He wasn't cool with it. My dad believes that it is his right to think gayness is made up. Like, he told me, he's now come to a point where he says that I'm not like this, but that most gay people are just doing this to seem cool. Like, most gay people are just pretending to seem cool. And he's, you're not like that because you couldn't possibly actually be cool? Is that where he's going? I, no, I think he just understands that if, at this point in time, if he said that, that um, it would be a fight. Like, it would be a fight that would ruin my trip home. So he just makes an exception for me. I don't understand how they can know me and not understand, like, how it works for me. And for my dad, it is a very willful kind of ignorance. He does not want to pay attention to my life so that he will not have to understand this because my dad just wants to believe that it is wrong. And for my mom, I always say that it's, you know, it's it's hard for her because on the one hand, um, you know, it, it means I'm upsetting the the laws of God and it's disgusting and all of that. On the other hand, it does mean I have admitted that no woman will ever love me as much as she does. <laughs> Um, and also there is something that what allowed me to be closeted for as long as I was, like until I was 23 years old was kind of the way I was raised to understand Judaism as being distinct from Christianity in that the laws of Judaism aren't moral so much as they are prescribing a life that it is, it is the laws collectively, um, as uh, like a gesture and a ritual that bring like holiness to our lives. It's not that eating crab is an evil thing. It is that my approach to the world is defined by me declining to eat crab. And so I really thought it, I, I, when I was young and I, I, I was, it sounds like Durkheim. <laughs> um, when I was young and I was first attracted to guys, I felt evil and disgusting about it. But by the time I was in college, I was like, no, this is just the lot that has been given to me by God. I will just decline to have sex with men. I will just continue to decline to have sex with men. So, like, do you ever meet other people who come from a rednecky kind of background who pick up on it in you? Um, no, but it is always interesting to meet other gay guys who came from a rednecky background or comedians who came from a rednecky background because it's not that common. I mean, you do get the rednecky comedians. You'll get somebody like Nate Bargatze who like loves and feels so much honor for this place that he came from. And I'm resentful of that because my place doesn't want me. My place doesn't want me. The shitty MMA fighter from Yuba City, the Appeal Democrat will run a story about him. I can be in a movie. They're not going to pay attention to it because it's that fag. Um, but like uh, Max Silvestri told a story on stage about his dad working construction. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because most comedians, their parents are nice lawyers who were able to pay for them to have hopes and notions. And it is weird when somebody comes from a scrappy background and ends up being like a smart and interesting comedian. Um, but gay guys as well, there is the weird thing of like, the, the like gay rodeo guys are, or the ones who still want to love this place that they're from. And I do like, I just kind of have for a long time felt like I'm not allowed to love this place that I'm from because it doesn't love me. Um, I, I have, I have a friend who is a uh, gay Catholic priest uh -huh. who went through this like 
around Catholicism, where he was like, I love Catholicism and I'm gay and I just disagree with that part. And he wrestled with that for decades until he was finally like, okay, I can't. Well, and okay, there, there are two really interesting points there. One of them is I always do have to look at the Catholic Church as a place for gay guys. Like, it, 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 Catholic Church for. 1600 years wasn't saying nobody can be gay. It was saying you can be gay as long as you wear our little skirts and swing our incense around and do what we're supposed to do. This is the place for those guys. Um, And I can't begrudge it that. But then you also say he struggled with it forever. And like, I do just think the best thing about Judaism is that at the end of the day, it's always saying your wrestling match is what matters. Like your wrestling match, like whatever you can, like you can have the near, like you can, you can be an atheist or you can be the most orthodox person on the planet. What matters is that you are always struggling with this. You are always trying to figure out and find an answer um, because that's smart. Like it's just a thinking person should not have a simple and comfortable relationship with anything, especially the hardest questions that we have. So as someone who is like, didn't fit in, in, in the world you grew up in and came from a world and, and live in a world now that most people did not grow up how you grew up, like, where do you feel at home? Where it, do you feel understood? Okay. Well, that's, that's a very interesting point because, um, well, and there's also the thing of, of me being like a fat guy and not what a gay guy is supposed to be in that way of like, I should really feel uncomfortable with homosexuality and and that sort of stuff. I should feel uncomfortable in the city because I did not grow up of it. And, uh, you know, a lot of, like, it is a very, because every homosexual is a convert, um, there is a lot of, like, tension and alienation from um, the, like, they're like, oh, gay guys don't like me or I don't like gay guys or whatever. The thing is, is I feel comfortable in the city with smart people because that is the place that is nice to me. I feel comfortable in a gay bar because those are my people. And it's like the home I have made is a beautiful thing. Like when I came back from law school after having hated law school so hard, so hard, so hard, I came back and um, I had a Seder for just me and my roommates and like one other person and I like wrote a Haggadah and it was fun. And then over the like 15 years since then, I have put progressively more and more effort and energy into a carnival ride of a dinner party. And like, it, it's weird that I fetishized that, that this sort of me having my friends and making them be funny and smart for me and cooking them expensive and fancy food is like, that is where I feel home at home in this like place where a place that feels like a dream compared when I grew up, I thought I would never be around people who had the same interests as me. And I thought I would never get to touch a naked guy. And however sad or weird I can feel now, I live in paradise. I live in paradise because of the boys I have gotten to touch and the general presumption that I will get to be around funny, interesting people all the time. It's like, Nothing could be more comfortable than that. And like, you know, like just going to an open mic, like don't you just feel so at home in an open mic? Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like, I feel like part of the reason that I 
I don't know if this is why I became a comedian, but part of the reason why I have stayed a comedian yeah. is that it is the first community and identity that I have felt not crazy in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, in some ways, it makes total sense to me what you're saying about the Haggadah because I mean, this, is, this, is, this was my allusion to Durkheim is, uh, you know, when my, the idea that, that ritual defines the community. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, how you that you can use ritual to define who your community is and what it stands for, and we certainly, in our own way, for many years before we had kids, like hosted a seder every year, and you know, wrote we're writing radical haggadahs and yes. like bringing together, you know, these transplanted Jews who didn't have families, you know, here in the Bay Area, and you know, Jew loving Gentiles and people who were into the ritual of it, and they were fucking great, and it's actually one of the more challenging things to figure out now for me about having children is like now there are too many kids just in my family to have a Seder that also includes 25 childless other people, you know, <laughs> like everybody's family has gotten bigger. So, but that was, you know, it. I think it's really uh, cool that, that you have used that instrument as well. Two points off of that. First one is um, there's some things like I hate the guys who say, oh, um, I'm very spiritual, but I'm not into organized religion. I very much believe that like, the organization, the ritual, is the thing that's good about it because we all could just think about stuff and be good people. But you don't a lot of the time. You don't. And there is something wonderful about saying, no, there's this day in the spring, and you're going to think about renewal on that day. And then there's this day in the winter, and you're going to, to think about... Um, like the passage of time and things getting harder and then how remembering that they're going to get better. I think that Hanukkah is a beautiful holiday and we dismiss it too much as being a a shitty off-brand Christmas. Um, That's lovely. But I am terrified of the fact that I just had like three sets of friends who I can't get rid of, like either get pregnant or pop out children. And these are Seder regulars. Uh, And I don't know... What Seder, lo- what my Seder looks like with children there, because there's so much, you know, like it's not unusual for there to be, uh, you know, instructions for removing uh, a breached birth sheep in in my Seder, or you know, just sort of like horrible, horrible, uh, like cruel and terrible jokes, and uh, like I'm I'm worried about what I'm going to have to do to make it child friendly, but also excited about it. Well, you also, I mean, the thing, like, for me, the thing is being a comic who has kids. Like, yeah. My kids came to comedy day one day, uh-huh. and in, in Golden Gate Park, my mom was there with them, and my mom was going to sit with them right while I was on stage. And my, the kids were really excited to see me. And the guy who was on before me uh, was Scott Thompson. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. And was being filthy. Right. And my mom was appalled, and she was like, you got to get the kids out of here. Uh they're, they can't be hearing this. And I was like, it's fine. Uh, like my, you know, I have been, you know, my kids have learned that because I'm their dad, there are things that are said on stage that do not get to be said anywhere else, you know? And yeah. so I went on stage, I did my jokes. They, I came off stage, we got in the car to go home. And I said, uh, you know, do you remember what the guy before me said? And they said, no. And I said, what did you think of daddy's jokes? And they said, uh, well, we saw the people laughing, but you didn't make us laugh. 
Um, nothing seems more terrifying than just having children. Like it does, it does just seem like the most terrifying weight of obligation on the planet. Well, it's not, I mean, it's not in, I, I understand why you say that it's not terrifying in some ways it's, it, it focuses you, you know, like every choice, how long I spend shitting affects another person. Yeah. Um, you know, and so. Uh, this weekend, because of Sketchfest and my wife had friends in town, we sent the kids to my parents' house for the weekend. And yesterday morning, there was one point where we were waiting for some friends and my wife and I were just standing on a street corner, <laughs> not doing anything for about five minutes. Yeah. And we looked at each other and he was like, when was the last time we just could stand aimlessly and not have to worry about anything else? Yeah, you know? that's crazy. Uh, how did you get from law school to comedy? Um. So I hated law school so much and those people were boring. I mean, many of them were lovely, but it was just, I wasn't satisfied. And I knew that I would never be a really great lawyer because I didn't love it so deeply. Um, But I was still in like a weird space. So I moved back and I was like, I'm going to take some time before I take the bar. And I'm going to just, because I had barely, barely done comedy my last semester at Berkeley. Um, I had been tempted to it. I had written a column for the campus paper at Berkeley and I had, come to like having people like me for being funny. Um, so then when I came back from law school, I, I started it and it was fun. But I really assumed that I would be a hobbyist in the way that, like there are a lot of professionals in San Francisco comedy who are just hobbyists. And I really thought I would be like Julia Jackson or Andre the Wonder Woman, who is like a nice respected attorney and then comes and does a set, you know, once or twice a week. And this is just a thing that enriches and makes their life more beautiful. Um, And I just sort of, A, I sort of, it was the process of me realizing I'll never be a really good attorney because like I'm smart and I'm good at it kind of, but like I'm never going to just be passionately pursuing it in the way that you need to, to have like a really, really good career. And I wanted to have a really, really good career, which is a weird reason to go into comedy. But another great thing that happened was we had a terrible economy at the time. So I took the bar, passed it, and then started applying for these, like, because I had not done... And what year is this? This is 2003. This is 2003. So because I hadn't taken the job for the county attorney's office in Minnesota that I had, I was applying for, like, random law jobs. So it was a lot of nonprofits and stuff. And they were barely offering to pay me, like barely offering to pay me. Uh, and I ended up getting a job writing for a tiny um, cable network here before I got a decent legal job. And I like, was like, all right, okay, it's meant to be. It's um, like I, I clung too much to the idea that because I was now making an income from being amusing that um, the, the, uh, I did not have to go be a lawyer. Well, you know, in some ways, it's imperfect, right? It's like you need the you need the insane hubris to get you out of the gate. Yeah, and is this the thing? Uh, I I saw this thing for the first time the other day that like was it something connected to Laura Swisher? Oh yes. Um. So what happened was, uh, like Laura Swisher was a co-host of a show on Tech TV, and so she moved up from LA, and I, like, there weren't any female comics and, in, in like our class. So I was sort of like tr- always tried to be big brothery towards new female comics. And I, I didn't realize that she already had a very nice career for herself in, uh, in LA. So I was like, Hey, I'll show you the ropes. And she's like, no, I'll do fine. But she liked me. So then she, uh, 
she was like, hey, there's a writing job. Like, we need a new web writer for our show. Um, well, you should submit for it. Um, and it was great. It was very, uh, and the, like, they all, the network that I worked for almost immediately got bought by Comcast. And like, half of the people got fired and I got laid off. And I was like, again, at that moment of, well, what do I do now? What, like, what do I do? And then they, uh, I, I sort of in my head at that moment decided, well, I'm going to be a stand-up. I'm going to stick with this and see how it goes. And then they ended up hiring me in LA. So I moved to LA. To work for what? To work for G4. So uh, before you went to work for Totally Biased, yeah. uh, Kamau used to say this, and it, when, when you would come up in conversation, uh-huh. Kamau, who is a, a class or two ahead of you, yeah, uh, used to say this thing about how like, you know, you at some point were like, well, I'm going to go to LA and be a comedy writer. And and that his 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 in, internally was like, oh god, you're so naive. You can't just move to L.A. and be a comedy. Oh, you did it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, no, I and and that's actually something is that I like I didn't I he didn't realize what was that I had a job there, but like I I moved earlier than you really should for a comic who starts out in San Francisco, but I moved for a job, and I would never have moved without a job there. Like I never would have believed in myself enough to just be like, all right, Branham, you're going to go find them big time. Just because, I mean, as we have talked about here, like the world has spent a lot of time telling me you are not right. Like you're, what you're, what you are is a weird and wrong thing. Um, And so like, I really did need to have that job to move with. And I actually spent way too long clinging to the jobs for that I had for G four, and not sort of going out and being a stand up and like proving myself on my own terms, but just sort of being like, oh, as, that I am being paid by a television network. However pathetic this television network is, is my sense of legitimacy. So, and then you wrote. So you wrote for G four, and you wrote for Chelsea Lately. Yes. And then you wrote for Fashion Police. Yes. And you wrote for Totally Bias. Yes. And some other stuff, I assume. Uh, I wrote for the last season of Punked. I wrote for the MTV series Awkward. Um, it's always like because when you're a writer in LA, like in between jobs, you end up getting a, a bunch of random little jobs. I will forget a lot of the time that I wrote for television programs or something like that and then be weirdly reminded that I have actually, like, that I did that for six months. Right. And, um, so, okay, so one of the things that I learned for myself about being on Totally Biased is that the people who, and I think we probably talked about this, the people who are good comedy writers, uh, or not all of them, but a lot of the people, you know, the, uh, are these incredible joke technicians. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, I remember taking pieces to Danny Vermont and being like, I feel like there's a joke missing here. And he would go, there are seven ways to solve this joke, you know? Yeah. Uh, you could have a misdirect or a rule of three, or you could, you know, a wordplay or a this, you know, and, and, uh, and the, one of the central requirements of the job of being a comedy writer is being able to subsume your own point of view and the point of view of the show and apply the technique to creating material. And, uh, I'm not good at that. Like my comedy is all point of view, right? And I can be punchy, but I can be punchy in the service of my own point of view. And like, if I can't 
get a purchase on it that I care about for myself. I have an enormous amount of difficulty writing jokes about it. And what's interesting to me about you is that you have made this career as a, that, that there are people who, uh, like, um, you know, uh, like Chuck Sklar said this, that he was a stand-up and then he started getting writing jobs and basically stopped working on a stand-up. Yeah. And there are people who get that, get to that point and then they then they just get sort of become writers and give, and give up on their own point of view. And you don't seem to have ever done that. You are able to write and you can write for uh, whoever and you have maintained your own voice in your stand-up. And so, and I'm sort of curious about how you think about that. That's so lovely. I, I never really thought about it that way, but it's very, it's very kind of you to say that. A, um, they're not being a gigantic, bald, gay guy-shaped hole in the entertainment industry. It has never been that excited about thinking about me as on-air talent or... Or any, or as a comedian, like there, there was sort of like even from when I started here. Oh God, I, I did the before you were funny podcast um, a couple of days ago, and I had to look through my material. Like in San Francisco, I had to look up my material from those first three years in San Francisco, and just realize how terrible so much of it was. But also very like very writery, um, and people. There's there's also not a not a a, a uh, older left-wing organizer dad-shaped hole in the entertainment business. Right. Um, which means that you, we will get shoved into jobs where the industry knows it can make money off of us because we can crank out jokes or this or that. Um, so that's why, I have, that's why I have been a writer. But I also like my own opinion. And there's nothing more fun than having your own opinion. And those are the best jokes that manage to like sync up everything. One of the real advantages is my first like job writing for for on air. Like my very very first job was as a web writer, but that was only a couple of months. But um, my, the the first like the first couple of jobs I had at G four weren't for comedians, which meant that I had the option of shaping the voice of what they were doing. Like they had they were people who had sensibilities, um, but it meant but they were like smart, funny people who were excited to share my voice with, with them. Um, and like, there was one time when I had this really, really like just obscure joke about federalism. Like it like the joke was, it had come to me in a dream. It was so stupid. It was basically about how native American reservations, they have gambling and they have, uh, cheap cigarettes because they don't have to pay state taxes on cigarettes. They should do late-term abortions there. Ha, ha, ha. To me, that's like, to me, that's just like the best joke. I love that so much. Not that it's really a joke, but like, to me, I was like, what a funny concept. And I found a way to write that for this video game review show that I wrote for and they were all fine with it and cool with it because it was a tiny little cable network and nobody cared. And that was really fun. But then I got to Chelsea lately and this lady is like a stand-up comedian who has her own style and her own approach. And it took me a good three or four months before I, I realized the things that I do that will work for her and the things that I will do that won't work for her. If any joke required a specific word order, she was going to get it wrong. And that would, she would like the joke and want to tell the joke, but then she would screw it up and it would sort of like fail. And that her jokes needed to be POV based. Then I needed to like find a way of finding like a big point of view that would work for her that I could also write well. Um, and that was really fun. You know, that was, and like that, that show was 
like fatuous and pop culture and everything like that. And it's, it's not all of what I do, which is why I like still being a standup. But like there is part of me. There's also something really fun about the fact that work for G4 was writing about nerd stuff for 15-year-old boys. Then I was writing for Chelsea Lately where I was talking about like pop culture stuff. Then, you know, going off and, and going to Totally Biased and like writing about politics after like years of wanting to write about like political jokes and not being able to. Like that's really fun. Writing for a prank show is terrible. Writing for a prank show is like every part of being a comedian that I don't like. And the whole time I was on Punked, I was just like, there's some guy, there's some dude comic who has to write shitty pop culture jokes for like a Yahoo show or something like that who hates it and would love finding hilarious things to put in a rapper's gas tank. Why can't we switch jobs? Because I hate this. The other thing is, is that like a lot of those guys who were on Totally Biased were like, from the Conan writer's room and had like been in a world where your job all day long is just to craft the jokes. And as somebody who's worked on smaller cable shows, we didn't really, you know, didn't really have that. I've also, you know, not worked on shows that had those like all dude, real joke pro writer's rooms. Like Chelsea lately was half ladies and a lot of people who, who hadn't written on shows before, uh, or had written on sketch shows, that kind of thing. But I do appreciate how much working on smaller cable shows taught me how all of a show gets made. And like as a comedian, I think understanding, like because we always have to produce everything in our act. You understand that if you're adding, neither of us have music or cues or anything like that in our acts in any way because we just like to get up there and talk. But for anytime you do that, when you produce Iron Comic, you have to know where everything is and how everything works. And working on little cable shows was nice because I learned how that works for TV shows. And so if I want to make something funny, I know what tools I have to work with. I understand that bringing a chicken on set is impossible because we would have to get a fire marshal there. I understand that if I need to get two wigs by tomorrow at noon, I need to go talk to the ladies right now. Like, uh, I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so then, what was how did all that contrast with doing doing your web series, The Factory? Um, that was lovely because it was so small scale, but it was also the first thing I had ever done that was just like me focused, and that was really really interesting and fun. What happened is, I was writing for Punked, and Ashton Kutcher was going to start a um, his own channel for one of those Google YouTube channels, and they had money for it. And so uh, the other guys who worked on Punked and I, like everyone went in with pitches and they liked the pitches from all of the like straight fratty dudes who were making straight fratty comedy and they weren't really excited about my thing. Um, and then they weren't really able to put together the production for any of those other things. Like they had a couple of like really nice, attractive, beautiful shows, but then they needed to make another show and they were like, your show is very, very simple and easy. Why don't we just do that? Uh-huh. Um, and that was awesome because they basically let me do, it, they let me do the comedy thing that I like most and I get to do least, which is explain some sort of weird or complex thing in a way that is both amusing and hopefully as accurate as possible. A lot of people took a lot of issues with, uh, with um, my, uh, my explanation of, um, why Luxembourg still exists. Like there was a lot of controversy there. Oh, I, I, I assume that you were going to have been taken to task by, about Game of Thrones. Oh uh, no, Game of Thrones, they were just pissed off because I included a, a, like a terrible spoiler from like three, three books in. Like I included like a pretty big spoiler from actually, yeah, from three books in. 
Uh, and they were like pissed off and, and thought I, I shouldn't have done that. I think you and I uh, share many values. Uh-huh. And, but I think that there is, there may be something that we disagree about and I wanted to flesh it out. Okay. Which is uh, the importance in, to the, uh, from the point of view of making the world a better place. Yes. Um, uh, the importance of struggling over or, or uh, ch- uh, holding people accountable on the internet. Um, okay. And sp- I mean, what got me thinking about it was that uh, I, that you wrote uh, an incredibly thoughtful and well-written and nuanced post on Huffington Post about the Chick-fil-A boycott. Uh-huh. And I, being sort of coming from a traditional organizing background, did not understand the Chick-fil-A boycott as, at all right. as being legitimate political strategy in the sense that in my world, you know, a strategy is something where you have a demand that the target can give uh, that, uh, you know, without changing who they are and that, uh, and that you organize a boycott in order to achieve that demand and then end the boycott. That's the idea, right? And, you know, this whole, the thing of like boycotting companies whose owners happen to believe things that you're aware of are reprehensible. It's like, I'm sure every company is owned by somebody who believes things that I think are reprehensible. You know, there are lots of, crummy ones that, and I just know about some and don't know about others. And so anyway, I want to talk to you about that. Oh, uh, it's, it's very interesting because it is not a political strategy. It is a cultural strategy. Like I made the point earlier that all gays are converts and we are not great adherents of our own faith to extend the religious metaphor. Basically you grow up knowing you probably shouldn't be gay and like are suffused with some degree of shame and knowledge that you should know your place. We have both been in rooms where like mean faggot jokes are told and this is San Francisco. So very frequently somebody will make a noise or say that's not acceptable. Um, even though uh, when you are in a comedy audience, you're not supposed to talk back. And I, I really think that that's an interesting question of when it is, when we as comedians are sort of like, yeah, no, somebody in the audience should say, shut up to the person on stage. Um, but basically, most most gay audience members who are hearing something mean be said about gay people will just put their head down because um, gay people not being a visible minority always have the option of just fading into the background, but in the process, losing part of themselves. And for me, the Chick-fil-A boycott was not... It, is not about changing Chick-fil-A. It is about changing gay people. It is about us in a very Jewish way, in a very um, making sanctifying your life by circumscribing it. Um, that I need to know that it's not that those chicken sandwiches are bad. It is that I deserve better than what those chicken sandwiches represent. And I realize there are homophobic, homophobic people behind lots of things, but Chick-fil-A has just become such, like it has become noteworthy. They have basically swung their dick around about being homophobic. And I need to always remind myself that like I am wonderful and beautiful and deserve better than that. That um, being shit upon by society is something I came to expect and don't have to. Um, So like, that's what is a lot of people don't get why it is a pride parade. They don't get 
the the shame that surrounds it and the fact that that shame really needs to be fought if we are going to be able to be an effective political force. And we, like we've done all right with marriage, um, but I think like for gay people, gay people are a small minority and we're going to be a small minority anywhere. We don't have a homeland. Um, and because of that, we need to be capable of united action and need to remind ourselves that this is a part of our identity that matters and has to be attended to in ways other than just getting drunk around other gay people. When you are like working for Totally Biased was so, was so interesting. One time we did what ended up being a shit show of a piece that never aired, but it was, we went to, I had written a piece that was intended to, to ask uh, regular people in like uh, Times Square or somewhere about who's got it worse, black people or gay people. But the guy who was producing it was like, I've got a better idea. We'll go to a barbershop in Harlem and then a gay bar. And I was like, that's not what I wrote it for. But when we went to the barbershop in Harlem, some horrible, horrible things were said about gay people. But what impressed me most was how politicized they were as a group. That all of those people in that barbershop understood what goes along with being a black person in America. That there was a mural up on the wall uh, that included the first black female federal judge. Like that everyone there, because of how much fighting it took to, to get them equality of, of, of some level, like understood that it is their constant job to be aware of, is it bad for the blacks? In the way that Jews have always had to understand, is it bad for the Jews? And gay people are terrible at that because nobody teaches you that because you come out when you're in college and you are, get drunk and you learn how to like fuck other people and how to have gay friends and all of that. But like nobody is there. There is no mom telling you Israel. Like nobody is just reminding you that once you turn 50, all you're going to care about is Israel. <laughs> I've, I should have been frustrated about the degree to which the internet has become all about these cycles of denunciations and outrage. Yeah. And, you know, apologies or non-apologies or whatever. And, like, whether it's fucking Duck Dynasty or, you know, somebody says something shitty and people get mad at them. And, you know, or, I mean, I also, I, I had this debate with, you know, Kamau and, and Hari got super fired up about Ashton Kusher doing the brown face thing right. for the Pop Chips ad. And, and, and I was like, you know, it's fine to call somebody out and that got taken down. Was anything organized? Is that, does anything come out of that? Does that solve, do, you, do we think Ashton Kutcher learned anything? Right. The, what, what was gained, did, were things moved forward in any meaningful way in the struggle against racism overall or was it just like this sort of self-righteous exercise of denouncing someone? The self-righteousness is what's really interesting. I feel like 30 years of civil rights movies have given us this very clean idea of the good people and the bad people. Like, movies like The Help only exist to convince us that we would have been some of the good white people, like Emma Stone. And there is no way of talking about something in between where you are a good person who made a bad choice or a good person who didn't think about something because they didn't have, you don't have to think about it. And like, we can call things offensive or racist, and no one wants to be those things. Like, everyone wants to explain why they're not. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not this bad thing. And we need to be able, like, here in the Bay Area, everyone understands, like, that we are all sinners and we are all racists and, and all of that. But we need better language to be able to talk about, like, you made a bad choice. You did something that was misogynistic without thinking about it. But also, you're not the worst. Right. And, like, the, 
we just need better language for discussion. It's, of this I mean, stuff. it's the thing that that did you ever see Jay Smo's great video about? No, no. Jay Smo did this amazing video about the difference between the you are racist conversation and that you did something racist conversation. Right. And Hari actually showed that to us in a in a meeting once. Um, and I think you know it's. I mean, it's what ends up happening is like how do you how do you have a struggle for things that accepts that people are different places and different stages of consciousness and understanding and sensitivity around a whole range of different issues and keep everyone moving forward and hold people accountable without driving them away from the thing. We do. There was something on Totally Biased that like, there was a a lot of people were uncomfortable with it where we got mad at Bob Costas for this piece he did about the name of the Washington Redskins where he basically explained it from both sides and then was like, uh, and, and and then was sort of like, well, maybe we shouldn't call them the Redskins anymore. And a lot of people are totally biased, were very angry about presenting it as though it were a valid argument why the name should be kept. And like, I, I don't think, um, I mean, I understand that like being even-handed can be used for very conservative purposes, but I also think being respectful of disparate views is what liberals are supposed to want. Like, like at, at the end of the day, I went to law school. I will always believe that in the United States where we have a First Amendment, that lots of talk about all of the perspectives will end up with, uh, with better points of view. Which is, is why I don't have a problem with criticizing people because I think that, like, speech combats speech. Um, you know, let Phil Robertson say what he wants to say. I will say that is stupid. Um, and, you know, it's not like I was going to get pissed off at A&E or anything like that because what he was was just a celebrity who said something stupid. To me, the big, the big question that I have, like, if, if people, you know, that when somebody says something offensive or like Miley Cyrus and the question about racial appropriation or whatever, like when that's, there's sort of a wave of blogs and, and, uh, uh, I have been wondering this thing about like, you know, here you have Facebook and Twitter and, you know, the whole sort of phenomenon of like clickbait and these companies whose existence depends on traffic and that the way it, it is entirely possible that they can control their algorithms so that we all keep traffic, you know, going on these things that make us outraged that are not designed to actually change the world in a serious way. And Upworthy. I, upworthy. Upworthy yes. the world. And I wonder, like, it's possible that that stuff is a first step of civic participation in the same way that voting is for many people a first step of civic participation and that there are some people for whom it leads to additional action that's more sustained or more organized. But does that become a placebo where we don't feel the need to do anything because that's right. what we're doing? Do people feel like retweeting the thing and posting the the upworthy link or the petition or whatever and you know liking the post of the thing you disagree with is is sufficient political action or do people, are there some people who are using it as a bridge to actual, to re- participation in real life? And I just don't know the answer to that, but well, I feel like that's the question. I would say a lot of toppled governments in the Middle East would say that Twitter is doing a great job of it. And I really think, um, like, when we got the printing press, the Catholic Church got cracked in half and most of the monarchies of Western Europe, um, like, saw some real danger over the course of the next hundred years because communication had fundamentally changed. And in that same way, the internet has changed our society for gay people particularly because 
you can't isolate us anymore. 15-year-olds can find things that I couldn't dream of having in my home to teach them about who they are. Parents can no longer wall their child off from being able to have a normalized relationship with their homosexuality. That's fucking awesome. And also, because we did have to find sex in clandestine ways for such a long time, we are really good at the internet and have politicized it because gay people, as I have said, are bad at politics, but over the past 10 years have tried really hard to be responsible about it. A lot of us have. You probably don't know this. You are familiar with the application Grinder. You know that it is men's torsos and that you flip through them. But what you don't know probably is that when you open it up, most of the time there's a pop-up message. About half of the time, it's going to tell you about a party in your area or some sort of like event that is about getting drunk and having a good time. The other half of the time, it's going to tell you that there is a fight in your state about marriage or that shit's going down in Uganda. And that is beautiful because for a long time, we thought that there is the world of politics and the world of sex, and we will keep those things very, very separate. And then we had to understand that black people have churches and like migrant Mexicans have the fields to organize in. We must organize in the places where we find dick because that's what we get together for. I, th- I think that is a great place to end the conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. That was the NATO Sessions with Guy Branham. I'm NATO Green. The NATO Sessions is executive produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by DJ Real. This is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Review us, like us, share us around. You can follow me on Twitter at Nato Green. See me do stand-up every week at The Business at the Darkroom Theater on Wednesdays in the Mission District. And thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.